Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 16, 16. Uh, I'm trying to think of what 16 is in Spanish, but I don't know. Do you know the uh, what 16 is in Spanish, Eric, by any chance? No, I don't. Okay, well, sorry for those of you listening uh, and uh, that want to know what 16 is in Spanish, just Google it. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, I, this uh, particular episode is brought to you by Dawn and David. Uh, Don and David went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the Donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Don and David, for your uh, generous contribution. This episode with Eric is for you. Uh, at SoberSpeak, you will find podcasts of people sharing their experience, uh, excuse me, of people sharing their recovery, much like you do at an AA speaker meeting. These men and women share their experience, strength, and hope centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. My name is John M. I'm an alcoholic. I'll be the host of this episode. Consider this Sober Speak meeting, if you will, a meeting between the meetings. So I have asked Eric, who is here with me today, to read a um, daily reading, a portion. I just asked him to bring in something that would be... Uh, um, uh, it would be, so oh, I can't even talk today, would be something that he would like to read. And so he's brought it in. Yes. So this is from page 42 of the big book. It's the first paragraph of the beginning of chapter four, We Agnostics. And it says, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic. So I thought that was great. That was actually the definition of alcoholism from the big book. I like that, Eric. So we'll talk, maybe I'll ask you a little bit more about that in a moment, okay? So we welcome all of your comments. You can get in touch with us in a couple of different ways. You can go to SoberSpeak.com and click on the Contact Us tab, or you can email us directly at feedback at SoberSpeak.com. We not only welcome your feedback, but highly encourage it. Please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want. Leave the rest at the curb. Super. So uh, before we get into Eric's story here in just a moment, I, you know, I mentioned this on a few podcasts ago, but I want to put this at the top of this podcast. And that is I want to just uh, um, publicly thank uh, my wife, uh, Shannon, for uh, assisting with getting this podcast uh, uh, up and running and keeping it maintained. She's the one who sets up the website. She does all of the social media stuff. Uh, she does a lot of technical work in the background. And uh, I am just uh, forever thankful to her for doing that. So love you, honey. And uh, thank you for all your work with this. So, all right. So now let's go ahead and turn a corner. We're going to talk to Eric. So Eric, I have heard you once before. It really caught my attention. Uh, your description, if you will. I don't want to say you rewrote the steps. Uh, you know, that's like saying, that's like telling, telling somebody in church you rewrote the Bible or whatever. But you 
summarized or put in a synopsis form the 12 steps of recovery for you so you could understand it better. Could you go through those once and, and kind of maybe even before kind of explain the process of what got you to actually doing that? Yeah, so I thought it was um, really uh, difficult for me when people in the AA meetings would reference various steps and they'd be like, okay, so I was you know, working on step seven, or I was doing step nine, or I was doing step 11, or step four, and I was like, you know, I could not rattle off the top of my head, you know, what in the world are they talking about? And this was uh, early on in the initial uh, few months of my sobriety and going to AA meetings. And so just in my head, I went through as short, uh, um, I don't want to call it a summary, uh, just a, a couple of key words for kind of each of the steps. Mm-hmm. So for step one, it's I am broken. Step two. Well, so let, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's take those a step okay. at a time here. Because okay. it's really interesting to me okay. the way you summarize yeah, yeah. it, right? So step one uh, is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Oh, man, I'm, I'm blanking here. I, uh, we admitted we were powerless over and that our lives had become unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of took that and you said I, the step one for you, for you so you could understand mm-hmm. and kind of internalize it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And it, may, it sounds like it's abbreviated as mm-hmm. I am broken. Yeah. I, do you remember what sort of process? Yeah, all this really. So um, I guess, you know, appropriately, my uh, my own sponsor's name is Bill. And Bill was super helpful, of course, in reading through uh, the big book and how it works together. But pretty early on in the process, we started reading through the 12 and 12 as well, because the some of the steps as... Most people listening know some of the steps in the big book are very short. Yeah. And so the 12 and 12 goes through those steps that are very short in more detail. And so when we would go to a step that was very short in the big book, Bill would say, okay, well, let's go to the 12 and 12 and read it in there. And there would be a good 15, 20, 30 pages on it. And I found that to be super helpful. Whether it was like, I think like six, step uh, six and seven, I think are really short in the big book. And in uh, step, uh, and in the 12 and 12, there, I mean, the ones about... Um, um, asking God to remove our um, shortcomings and uh, humility. Um, I mean, that's. I mean, that, that just hit home, and it hit home a lot more um, in reading the the twelve and twelve. And so, anyway, I believe that in talking about step one in the twelve and twelve, it talks about brokenness, and so that's where that came ah, from. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Very cool. So, you know, and okay, so step two, let, let's go. What was your. Okay, so step two is have an open mind. Okay, so, okay, so let's once again, and and I'm not, uh, came to believe mm-hmm. that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So you kind of abbreviated that. Just say have an open mind, right? Which is basically what it talks about in both the book and the 12 and 12. It says, you know, just barely open up the door, or, you know, crack the door. Or I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, and that is, and that's literally, um, those. that's not my words. That is um, almost literally what it says in the last paragraph of step two in the 12 and 12. Yeah. And so when you read the 12 and 12, it's it's great because the last paragraph of each step really basically like tries to encapsulate what that step is. Yeah. And so that's what it says in the uh, in that last paragraph for step 2 is to just hey, have an open mind. So, okay, so and when you when you so when you kind of internalize have an open mind, how did that manifest itself in in your life? In other words, what do you think you did not have an open mind about and Oh yeah, no, that's that's great because um, 
uh, a central part of being an alcoholic and a central part of uh, you know AA meetings and AA is um, is um, is being uh, delusional and being in denial, right? So it's being in denial of being an alcoholic and it's in being in denial of being broken. And uh, step two is about um, being in denial. You, you could be you could be seen as being in denial about being open-minded. So it's like, okay, well, what's the opposite? You know, everyone's like, oh, of course, of course I'm open-minded. Uh, everybody thinks they're open-minded. <laughs> we all think we're and, but, but, but okay, so fine, what's the, op- what's the opposite of open-minded in some senses it's being quick to judge things and so it's like okay as the blinders you know started to come off about my own uh denial and delusion i'm like you know i am really quick to judge things i'm quick to judge a lot of things and it's amazing how and obviously i was quick to judge my my lack of being an alcoholic and so i obviously had to take a step back and be like, no, you know, I I am broken, you know. And then, you know, I really had to take a step back about being open minded. And it was so because if you're not if you're not open minded, then you know, obviously, step two is there for a reason because it's real hard to do steps three through twelve if you're not open minded about it. And I just, I it's one of the, you know, one of the dawn from our 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 group says, you know probably something that a lot of people say, which is, you know, you, you come for the drinking and you stay for the thinking. And so <laughs> the, um, the application of being open-minded, not only to the 12 steps, but just around so many other aspects of my life, I found that I was quick to judge a lot of things. I'm married. I have three kids. And it might be something as, you know, simple as, you know, hey, dad, you know, let's go out in the backyard and jump on the trampoline. Or, you know, maybe, you know, hey, can I eat this, you know, before dinner? And so I would be like, you know, I would be very quick to judge and be like, well, no, you can never eat anything before dinner because it will ruin your appetite, (laughs) right? right? And, you know, sometimes it's like, well, you know, dinner's going to be kind of late tonight and you want to eat an apple. I really have no problem with you eating an apple before (laughs) dinner. Like, it's okay. And um, we're all going to survive. Right. You know, I mean, and so obviously that's a a sort of, but I was just doing that so much. And so now if I kind of pause and I say to myself, okay, well, what if I was just open-minded about this? I found that um, in a lot of ways, I've kind of like been more patient. I've, I've taken in more information before making a decision. I've not been so quick to judge things. And so, um, anyway, long-winded answer as to why uh, step two is have an open mind. No, I like that. So, and I kind of breezed past step one in mm-hmm. that I am broken there. Yeah. So, I, I want to dive into that a little bit because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as you said, there's a lot of denial, right? People don't really think that they're broken and then they come into the program, they start going through inventory, start looking at the steps and they realize I'm broken. So, in what ways did you realize after you got into the program that you were broken that you had not thought of before. Yeah, and that's where the um, the big book was really helpful uh, with that in that it talked about how, um, you know, when I, when I, I went to my first A meeting on a, on a Thursday uh, evening at, uh, at 5.30 or 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the nice woman who was chairing the meeting uh, 
gave me a copy of uh, the big book. And I've come to find out that that is actually not a regular practice, that a lot of times people are not given the big book right away in their first meeting. And I got there early. I was like the first person there besides her. So we had like 15, 20 minutes to kill. And she, she's like, you know, it, I guess it was, it was fairly obvious that I was new. So she's like, you're new here. And I'm like, yeah. And so she's like, okay, well, there's this book. And she gives me the book. And a lot of people say that, you know, they're not big into reading and it's completely understandable that the big book is kind of written in, you know, a 19, you know, 30s era, you know, English and it's you know, hard to read. I totally get that. I personally uh, love to read and that's probably the best way for me to absorb things. And so, you know, I think that the for a lot of people, the most tenuous days of their sobriety are in the first few days of going to their first AA meeting. It's like, you know, you're making a drastic change where, you know, people like myself have gone from like drinking daily for a very long time yeah. to all of a sudden, or almost daily, to, to okay, so now we're going to like stop for a while, a day, you know, two days, three days, a week. And for me to immediately be able to turn to a book that I can read and like, and the, the punchline is, is like, it was a real page turner. And every single page that I read, I was nodding my head. I was like, yep, that's me. Yep, I agree with that. Yep, I can see that. <laughs> and, um, and especially the part around uh, resentment, which is fairly early in, on in the big book where it says, you know, something to the effect of, you know, we alcoholics find that we have a lot of resentment. And I thought, and I said to myself, you know what? I never really thought of it that way. I always had different euphemisms for the word resentment. I would call it frustration, right? <laughs> uh, you know, or maybe sometimes anger, but it was typically frustration. And I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, that frustration is really resentment, right? And I even had, I didn't, I'm like, I don't even know what resentment means. I had to look it up. And it means justifiable anger. And I was like, you know, that's totally true. I was angry, but I felt like I was justified in my anger. And then I was like, that is... And then, of course, the big book quickly points out, like, that resentment is like, it's like, you know, rattlesnakes and tarantulas, that it's like a really, like, dangerous thing. And that um, you need to let go of that. <laughs> and that, you know, having resentment is going gonna, is gonna to come back to bite you. You know, no pun intended. And so... <laughs> I was real, you know, I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm resentful. I'm resentful. And that was kind of the beginning of the, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg and just realizing that, you know, I am, I'm broken. And I've realized, um, you know, I'm broken about a lot of other things too. And one of the really unique things about AA meetings that I particularly enjoy is, is that, you're in a room with a bunch of other people that also see and acknowledge their own brokenness. And it's like, how many places or how many times in your life are you around a bunch of other people that also realize they're broken? And it's like almost never, like you're almost never in a situation like that. And so, and so, okay, so fine. So at the dinner parties, it's not like we're sitting around. Well, you know, saying, at work or, you know, or, you know, at home or at church. I mean, you name it, you know, civic group or club, sports team. I mean, you name it. You're never going to be in a situation where you're around a bunch of people who, you know, realize that they're broken. It's and not so, like I get on a call at work and say something like, uh, how you doing, John, today? Well, you know what? I'm feeling a little resentful, dishonest, selfish, and afraid today. Yeah. How are you doing out there? Yeah, you know, I'm just, you know, and it is, um, and then, but. What the 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 gift of acknowledging brokenness uh, in some ways is the blinders have come off. In other words, that the 
delusion uh, and denial goes away. And it doesn't go away completely and it comes back like on a daily basis. But if, you, but if I can acknowledge on a daily basis that I'm broken, then I can also on a daily basis work to not live in denial. Right, because you, because of because of our, and then the big book talks a lot about pride too. So because of our pride, we try to trick ourselves and lie to ourselves into thinking that we're not broken, and so therefore we just we go down this path of delusion and denial, and we apply that to all other aspects of our life in terms of our relationship with our family, or our coworkers, or our finances, uh, or our faith. And so I'm like, okay, so I'm broken, and everybody else in this room also knows that they're broken, and also like. I'm like learning how to not be in denial. And I'm in a room surrounded by a whole bunch of other people who are not in denial. And that's, again, that's awesome. Because if you like, again, think about all the other situations where you're around people, you find that, wow, a lot of people are in denial about a whole bunch of stuff. And it's amazing. The human mind's capacity to be in denial is just incredibly powerful. And it took... Be, you know, being an alcoholic and being broken for me to for me to realize that. What about the? Do you remember anything else about that first meeting? Uh, 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 I know you talked about it a little bit, but is there anything else that comes out of that? Well, it's just that the um, that the people in the meeting. So that so that um, Thursday evening meeting it was it was relatively small, maybe fifteen, maybe twenty people, and everybody just immediately right out of the gate started talking about their own brokenness. And, you know, like many Amy's, they, they were just recounting they, very specific stories. And, you know, it was one story about um, a woman who had been um, uh, sober for like 16 years and then had gone out and started drinking again for like eight and now was on like her second round of sobriety and had been sober for like four or five years. And she talked a lot about that sort of interim period of being uh, out drinking again. And, you know, with a you know, room full of strangers and just incredibly honest about her own brokenness and, and you know, kind of coming full circle. And then, you know, another person talking about being um, so drunk in their Uber car that they let their Uber driver into their uh, apartment and their Uber driver like stole money and jewelry from them. <laughs> And, you know, again, you know, room full of strangers and it's just like these types of things. And, and both for that, that one um, person and then for the second person, they were like, I got a problem with alcohol, you know, and it was like, and they were very forthcoming about that. And I just, and I just think about how, you know, everybody, I shouldn't, you know, everybody, a lot of people tend to put on facades or they tend to like accentuate the positive and like not talk about the negative. It's like the whole like Facebook thing where you only post like the really like nice pictures of your, you know, trips and blah, blah, blah on Facebook, but you never show like the bad stuff. Right. And it was like the exact, it's the exact opposite of Facebook. Right. And so, and it was, um, I've never thought about it that way. But it was, but that was, but that's what I but that's what I needed to like, to like, to like see those blind spots and just to be like, Oh man, I got a lot of blind spots, you know, but, but so does everybody else. I mean, everybody's broken. Maybe the only difference between alcoholics and a lot of other people is we just realize that we're broken. And a lot of people, a lot of other people don't realize how broken they are because we're all broken. Right. But once you acknowledge that it's like, you know, the fourth dimension doesn't come uh, like right away, but you, you can start to see the beginnings of the fourth dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, I know you were talking a little bit there about, uh, you know, uh, having a hard time for most of us admitting that we're broken, you know, because of our situation and such. And, and, and I want to I want to talk about this a little bit because I think it's important in your particular scenario. Can you talk about the the kind of a, a career you had and, and what led up to that and, and why it may be? Because I know you're Anyway, I know a little bit about your background. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell the folks about your background and why it may have been hard to admit that you were broken, so to speak? Yeah, so uh, so I'm a physician, uh, and I um, my drinking career didn't really start until the end of college for me because I just had my you know nose buried in a book and I was in the library constantly. Thus, and the so, reading. Yeah, yeah, you know, I just you know that's just I knew I had to you know you know I knew I wanted to go to medical school, so I, knew I had to get uh, good grades in order to do that. And even then, even in my senior year, you know, it was, you know, weekends, but nothing. I didn't, you know, some people talk about alcoholism and it's like, well, as soon as they started drinking, then they started having the mental obsession. And at least in retrospect, I really didn't. Like I didn't, you know, when I wasn't, you know, drinking with my, you know, friends on the weekend, I didn't really think about alcohol. Um, And then I worked for two years before going into medical school. And then um, in medical school, again, you know. What kind of job did you have when you. I was, I was, I was working as a, as a hospital, um finance consultant. Ah. So this was, uh, this was back in the nineties, you you know, with the, you know, internet boom and everything. And it was just a great opportunity to, to go out and get some work experience and to get a job. And the average age of people, um, starting medical school is actually about 24 anyway. So a fair number of people actually do have some degree of time in between undergrad and, uh, and going to medical school. So it was really a, um, it was a you know it was a fantastic learning experience. It just learned about the you know how the how the how the working world works. Um, you know, kind of just getting up in the morning, going to work, and it's like you know coming home late at night, and you know having an apartment and having roommates and paying bills and just you know kind of being an adult. You know, right. which you know sort of. Um, but then when, again, you know, it was, it was, it was it, at that point it was, it was not an obsession. I, Were I, you married? I knew you no, no, okay. sing, single at the time. And okay. I, um, and I guess that, you know, for, you know, for, for me, like what I realized, you know, obviously after, you know, years and years of, of denial that I was an alcoholic because when I wasn't thinking, I was thinking about drinking. When I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. And, and that's why I read that passage today because, um, you know, on page 42 of the big book where it says, you know, hey, if you, if you tried to stop and you really, really found that you couldn't or if you drank and you ended up drinking a lot more than you originally intended, right. then you're probably an alcoholic. Right. And it didn't start out that way for me, it, but it evolved into that. Um, for me. And it really evolved into that um, in my uh, in my residency. So um, after you're um, you know, done with medical school, that's when you, you choose your, your specialty. And I was, you know, in the uh, hospital, um, you know, staying, um, you know, working 30 to 36 hour shifts every fourth night for three years. And um, what was your specialty? Uh, general internal medicine. Gotcha. And so it's a lot of, you know, strokes and heart attacks and bleeding ulcers and cancer and kidney failure. And, um, and it was, um, it was really, um, a lot of, um, you know, in, in, phys- in, in the, in the medical profession and for physicians, uh, being imperfect is unacceptable. And we have this, um, tendency to want to control everything. 
because we are we are because we because we feel like we can't because here someone is coming to you and they're uh, very ill potentially you know on the verge of death and they are asking you to stop that from happening and they're asking you to stop that from happening their family members are asking you to stop that from happening all the nurses and all the other staff around you are asking you that so you have this intense incredible social pressure to like stop them from dying because that's like the whole point that's like why you're there and uh, and guess what. Sometimes you can and, you know, and I, you know, literally people at death's door and, um, you know, there's this one woman who was a, um, who was a, a heroin addict, she shot up a uh, heroin. She had what's called endocarditis, which is a real bad infection of her heart and it was spreading, uh, uh, the infection all over her body to the point where she had, uh, these, um, infections in both of her lungs that causes lung failure. She popped um, holes in, a, in both of her lungs so both of her lungs collapsed she infected her kidneys so her kidneys uh, failed she had sepsis which means that her infection was so bad that her blood pressure dropped incredibly low and she survived it was unbelievable she was in the ICU for six weeks and she walked out of the hospital and I saw her in the clinic and I'm like you know Miss H like you realize that you're a miracle and she's like I know <laughs> I mean so it's like it's like it's, it's unbelievable like like I mean she was she was a goner I mean she was you know just on the ventilator I mean she was on dialysis I mean you name it and she came back and there's but and so what happens is is that you get those um it's almost like a it's almost like a like the lottery or it's like a slot machine where you try to exert your will and your your power and guess what sometimes it works but but I would say that a lot of the times it doesn't Right. And the person's cancer progresses and it metastasizes or they pass away or they bleed to death or they, they lose a limb from, you know, they, they lose their foot or their leg from, their, from their diabetes. So I've always been curious, like, so how does that affect, well, and maybe that's part of what you're talking about here. How does that affect you emotionally, spiritually? And is that why you turn to drinking? Yeah, it makes, you, it makes you incredibly, um, it made me incredibly uh, frustrated, which again was my euph- euphemism for. Frustrated with what? With, um, oh, anything and everything. Frustrated with anything that was getting in the way of me accomplishing my goal of saving that person. Gotcha. It could be the per- it could be the patient themselves, because they weren't compliant with their medication, or they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. Or when they went down to the smoking lounge at the hospital, they shot up drugs and then came back to their room high as a kite. Right. And so I would be incredibly, you know, angry at them. I'm like, I'm trying to help you, and here you are, you know, engaged in self destructive behavior. Right. Or I would be angry at any medical staff that messed up and you know people make mistakes so whether it was a fellow physician or a medical student or a nurse or a technician or different you know part of the hospital like if they messed up i mean i was livid gotcha and i would be angry at god right i mean you you know it's like the the classic case of like um you know there's there's the, the morbid joke in the medical profession that really nice people get cancer you know the just the nicest people on the planet right and they get struck down and I had one guy who was an ex-FBI agent, and he was like 44, and uh, and he had acute onset leukemia, and his, his blood counts were through the roof, and he had to be transferred from another hospital over to ours, and his family was in the car driving to meet him. He had been ambowed over, and, and he just broke down bawling because he had two daughters that were like seven and nine, and um, and he's like, you know, I just, I can't, you know, I can't have leukemia. Like, this is like not okay. Um, and, um, you know, it's like, 
this guy totally got, you know, got, you know, gypped or struck down. And I was like, I was pissed off about it. And then on top of that, I'd be resentful at the hospital and at the residency program for having to stay up 30 to 36 hours every fourth night. Because at the end of the day, that's like, that's like painful, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, try to put yourself in a high stress situation where you have to do like complex math problems and not sleep for, you know, a day and a half. And that's like, it's like physically painful. Like I would have like every, it was funny, myself and my fellow residents, we'd always talk about this, um, this, this gnawing, incredibly uh, bad heartburn and stomach pain that we would get while we were on call. And it was a combination of drinking massive amounts of coffee to stay awake and just the, uh, the stress of having people, you know, potentially at death's door and like, you need to do something about it. And I was mad at medical school for not preparing me for this. And that's what every doctor says. It's like, look, you know, medical school does not prepare you for residency. You get in there and it's, you know, trial by fire and you just, you're just thrown in and you better figure it out. And that's exactly what happens. They don't, all the attending physicians go home at five or 6 PM and you're there on your own until 6 AM the next day. And you got to figure it out. And, um, and it was, and so I would come back from the hospital on my days off and I would drink. And for me, it was, uh, it was really a sense of euphoria that it would give me. And it was like, it was the, it was the exact opposite feeling as what I had when I was at the hospital. And had that euphoria happened in the past with you when you drank It had, but it, it had never been, but I had other sources of euphoria. So like I had like hobbies and friends, right? You know, and I was in a city where I didn't know anybody and all my friends that were fellow residents, when I was off, they were working and when I was working, they were off. So I didn't have the camaraderie to be able to like hang out with people. So I was incredibly isolated. And at the end of the day, alcohol was just really easy. It was right there. And I was in a neighborhood where I could walk. So I didn't have to drive anywhere. And, um, you know, so it's like I, um, any other type of like outlet, whether it be, you know, social interaction or playing sports or, you know, what have you. And, you know, that, and of course that's the alcohol in me talking because I could have done all those things, but I didn't. I chose to drink instead because it was easy. It it was easy and it produced immediate euphoria. Right. And I have to, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have so many questions Mm -hmm. I want to ask, but this is one of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and then we'll get on kind of more back to your story, Mm -hmm. but uh, being on the inside looking out, you know, we always hear about uh, what does the medical profession know and not know about alcoholism and Mm -hmm. are they, you know, when you go to the doctor, I mean, they, sometimes they just want to give you, you know, a, a, what's, what's that, a Xanax or whatever the case may be. So what what did they teach you about alcoholism uh, when you're going through your residency and such? Well, it is so, um, the official um, medical term for alcoholism, so alcoholism is the, you know, is the, is the layman's term. It's not the medical term. So the actual medical term is referred to as medical use disorder. And it's a, it's a, it's a psychiatric diagnosis. Medical use disorder. Uh, excuse me. Alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, alcohol use disorder. And the, all the, all the, 
mental illnesses uh, in psychiatry are in something called the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the DSM. It's the fifth version that has come out. So in the DSM-5, it's referred to as alcohol use disorder, and it has criteria, and there's criteria for depression, there's criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, there's criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, there's criteria for schizophrenia, and there's criteria for alcohol use disorder. And um, at the end of the day, I, that, that, again, that's one of the reasons why I read that um, passage from page 42 is that to a certain extent, you can like, you can like fudge the, the, whether or not somebody has like alcohol use disorder in terms of like how you interpret the criteria and how you interpret that towards yourself or to another patient. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's like, well, if you tried to, to stop and you couldn't, or if you drank more than you originally intended... You know, the 1930s definition is pretty good. Right. And, um, and so, you know, they're, they're, you know, they, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's thought to be, you know, hey, there's, you know, some degree of, you know, genetic component. There's even some degree of, of thought that there actually are a subtype of people who drink that actually have what's referred to as uh, an opioid-like reaction to alcohol. In other words, it stimulates their brain in a similar way that, um, that heroin um, or opioids stimulate people's brains, and those people become especially addicted to um, to alcohol. And that, you know, whether you want to say that's the scientific equivalent of the quote unquote allergy, I don't know. Um, that's kind of you know beyond the beyond the realm of our of our discussion today. But at the end of the day, you know, alcohol is in, is a it's a it's a very small molecule, right? So it's just ethyl alcohol. So it's two carbons some hydrogen, and then a hydroxyl group, an OH, that's ethyl alcohol. And because it's such a small molecule, it goes into your brain, and that's why it makes you feel the way that you feel. But obviously, it does other things, like it goes into your liver and can cause cirrhosis of the liver. It decreases the amount of mucus that your stomach produces, so it makes your stomach more susceptible to things like bleeding and ulcers. Um, It gets into your nerves, so people can get alcoholic neuropathy. It goes into your heart, and so you can actually have alcoholic cardiomyopathy, where your heart blows up like a balloon and doesn't uh, function properly. It actually causes anemia because it's toxic to your bone marrow, um, it causes your blood vessels to dilate, which is why many people with alcoholism have a chronic tan. You're like, why are these, why is some, it doesn't happen to everybody, but like some people who, who are alcoholics or who drink a lot, it's not just like they're flushed when they're drunk, they're always flushed. And it's because the alcohol has permanently dilated the capillaries specifically of their face so that it makes them look more reddish tinged. So the point is, is that that little alcohol molecule causes damage all over your body. We just happen to feel it in our brains. Um, And, you know, that's a very sort of, you know, intellectual or, you know, cerebral, you know, way to it. But at the end of the day, it also um, stimulates the release of dopamine, right? So in your brain, the release of dopamine is what makes you feel good. That's the euphoric or the buzz effect of drinking alcohol. And so what else releases dopamine in your brain? Well, sugar releases dopamine in your brain. Cocaine releases dopamine in your brain. Heroin releases dopamine in your brain. Uh, Some antidepressants release dopamine in your brain. But other things like music releases dopamine in your brain. Conversations and laughter uh, with your friends releases dopamine uh, in your brain. So... um, it's one of the reasons why you know going to alcoholic meetings and the fellowship Al- Al- Alcoholics Anonymous is so important because okay if you had this thing that was creating all this dopamine in your brain and, and that goes away right. well you got to replace it with something and so that's where the fellowship's incredi- incredibly helpful and that's why too in 
um, in the 12 and 12 and in Living Sober and from many people that I've heard in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's why eating candy is helpful. You know, it, it's, it says it in multiple places, right? That, you know, alcoholics should probably have chocolate around or candy around. Because yeah, didn't you eat, didn't you? I love, I love candy corn. Candy you know, corn. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's because I sobered up around Halloween and there just happened to be a lot of candy corn around. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, when, when, was it swans or geese or firstborn, whatever they see first, that's what they identify as their mother. So that just happened to be the first candy that I saw in my sobriety. <laughs> and so I just identified with candy corn. Um, and so it is is um and it's and it's because of that uh that dopamine addictive and you know and you know sugar is highly addictive coffee is highly addictive all those things are highly addictive because of the dopamine that it stimulates in your brain which is exactly what alcohol does uh as well so that is that's again that's more of an answer than you wanted to know but that was all that was all not like rationally and objectively viewed as me as an alcoholic it was I was in complete denial about it. And, you know, I don't know what the statistic is, but the percentage of physicians that are alcoholics is higher than the general population. Uh, And most hospitals have a program for what they call disabled physicians. So for physicians that are addicted to either drugs and or alcohol, and um, they, they uh, they need to get help. And it has to be done in a way that does not, um, ruin their career because many physicians will never get help because if they think that if they get help, it's going to ruin their career, ruin their career. Meaning meaning they can't practice medicine anymore ever. Right. Like they have no source of income. They have no way to support their family. They have put, you know, years and years of training down the tubes. And so they're highly resistant to getting any help. And so they have these anonymous programs at hospitals to try to help uh, the physicians there, and in general, the sense of the people that run those when they come and they speak to the medical staff is that those programs are, are dramatically underused. So even though they make it anonymous and they try to make it as um, as easy as possible for physicians to get help, um, you know, physicians are very prideful, right? I mean, that whole idea of being able to cheat death, right? Um, like a and, little guy, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, it causes. It causes tremendous amounts of pride that, um, which then leads to denial, which leads to you know not believing in, in your own personal brokenness at all, and so uh, and so as a result, um, it really um, it really took, like with many alcoholics, it took so uh, a a hefty dose of um, you know eating humble pie before any of this was possible, which is why the the first step. For me, is I'm broken because I'm unless you unless you acknowledge that, then nothing else is gonna happen. And unless and, and unless you acknowledge that specifically about alcohol, I'm broken as it as, you know as it relates to alcohol. Um, and and then the other thing that I found that was delusional on my part and that was really key about that first meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous is that this. Um, this need, this not drinking anymore needs to be for the rest of your life and it needs to be absolute. So this is not a program to cut back on your drinking. This is a program to stop drinking completely. And I had never looked at it that way before. I always looked at, I really wish I could just drink less. And then AA was like, no, you have to not drink at all. The only way this is going to work 
is if you don't drink at all. And that had never occurred to me before. Um, again, because I was in denial and I was delusional. But I found that that was, um, was really, and it, and it took me probably like nine months. And after I got my nine month chip, I'm like, I'm never going to drink for the rest of my life. And like, I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. And, and that is actually, um, that's been very freeing. So let's go. So I know that there was, something happened there when when you were going through medical school, school to where I believe you started a. At some point, did you did you get out of or you finished medical school and then started a business or something like that? Is that correct? That was that. Yeah, that was later on. But that was then um, when I uh, started um, drinking heavily in uh, in residency. I also started a business, and I got um, I got married, and then my wife and I moved. Um, and what area of the country kids. did you come from? Where were you? So we were we were in the we were in the Northeast yeah. originally, and then we moved uh, moved to Texas. And the um, the lack of sleep um, actually got worse, not better. So having uh, small kids that were um, not good sleepers, and our second our second child actually had a colic, and so he literally screamed for the first two years of his life, and so I was just not there. There was no there were I know, so I was I was working at the hospital, I was starting a business, and then I was getting no sleep at home at night. And so if there was any opportunity other than like those three things, so it was either work, work, or up at night with the kids, if it wasn't one of those three, three things, then I would try to drink as, <laughs> as much as I could. That's not life, is it? So what brought you into, so how did you get into AA? How did you find it? Uh... So I, um, I, um, turned 40 in 2016 and for my 40th uh, birthday we had a big my wife threw a very uh, big party at our house it was great neighbors friends co-workers came just great and of course everybody brought some type of you know like bottle of alcohol as like a present for my 40th birthday right if that shouldn't have been a sign you know i should have picked up on that and so that was on a saturday and on and i was just like well this is great because i have all this you know amazing stuff that i can drink on sunday <laughs> and i spent the entire day on a sunday drunk and my wife and i got into a big fight and for the previous 2 years I had, in my mind, been like, you know what, I'm drinking too much. And for the past two, for the prior two years, I had tried to cut back on my own. And I would, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a faithful, uh, religious person. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. And I would pray to God and Jesus to help me not drink. And, um, most of the time I would I would end up drinking for two years. So my my approach was not working. 
<laughs> and, um, you know, so if you think about it, that's like over, you know, two years, that's like over 700 failed attempts in those prior uh, two years. And that's, that's a lot of failed attempts. And um, going back to the definition of alcoholism, right? And then um, I, so my, you know, my, my, my phone, I got five, and I'm like, you know, you're, you know, you're right. Um, and we both agreed to, to not drink um, for like, we were going to take like a, like a three month, month break completely. And I did fine for uh, a month, but then I went on a business trip and while I was on the business trip, I'm like, you know what? I want to have a drink. And, and so I did. And I drank on the way on the plane there and I drank, um, while I was there and I drank on the plane on the way home. And uh, when I got back home, I got caught by my wife mm-hmm. and I lied about it. I said, uh, no, no, no. Those charges on my credit card, those were snacks on the plane. And um, obviously, you know, again, delusional, even thinking that I, you know, could get away with that and could be dishonest about it. But, you know, that's that just goes hand in hand with being an alcoholic. And. Um, as you can imagine, um, she and I got, got into a huge fight and that was on a, that was on a Tuesday night and on Wednesday was when I told her and then my parents were visiting. And so I told my parents, I said, you know, I'm, I've got a problem and I'm going to go get help. And then that next day was a Thursday, and I went to my first uh, AA meeting. Five thirty. And, um, and I when we went around and you know in a, in a in a group of fifteen people, you know, in an AA meeting, you know, everyone's gonna get a chance to share. And so, the the woman who was chairing the meeting, she called me last, and I just said, "I'm Eric, and I'm an alcoholic." And that's all I had to say. And the, those words did not come out easily out of my mouth as easily as they did now. And it was very hard for me to say it. Um, but, but I said it. And I meant it. And that was when the beginning of the lying to myself and the denial started to end. And, you know, when I read through the, the big book and I read about the family healing, I mean, our family... Took a, you know, is taking a long time to heal and did take a long time uh, mm-hmm. to heal. And it was, re- it really, you know, a lot of what happens in the family healing was happening in our family. And it, and it really helped me because, of course, when it, you know, being the control freak that, you know, the alcoholics are, I wanted to make things better right away. And it just takes time. It does. It, so just out of curiosity uh, and... You know, I see this go different ways with different couples all the time. But can you, I guess at a high level, describe what it's been like with the family getting sober? Yeah, it has been um, an incredibly rocky road. And um, I I think it says this in the big book, but I could be wrong. But when I got sober, things got worse, not better. Mm -hmm. And they got worse for like a year. And, and why do you think it got worse? Can you describe that? I think that it was my wife, um, you know, justifiably so, felt betrayed and was very upset about that. Um, and with my with my three kids, I say that at the end of the day, you know, I wasn't 
I wasn't there mentally. I was there physically and I was there to like, you know, rock them to sleep and walk back and forth with them. But I was, but because I was an alcoholic, I was thinking about drinking. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about them. Right. And um, it took, you know, you're, when you're not drinking, it's amazing. Because when, you, when, you're, when you're drinking, you don't think to yourself how much like a zombie you are. But it's only in your sobriety you're like, holy moly, I was really a zombie. Right. Uh, I was really, you know, ha- half asleep in my entire existence. And so, you know, anybody who's listening to this, you know, you have kids, you've really got to watch your kids and you got to study them and you got to watch your spouse and you've got to study them. And by doing so, it allows you to be a much better husband and allows you to be a much better father when you really, you know, study your spouse and you study your kids and you see, you know, you know, what do they need and what do they not need and what do they react positively to and what do they react negatively to? Because every parent knows that their kids are all very different. And so you have to kind of approach your kids all in and and our um and our kids um really would feel my wife and I had a lot of arguments in that uh, first year of sobriety and our, our kids especially our our, um, our oldest child would who was eight at the time would really um, would really see it and could sense it and could and could feel it and as my really and my, my wife and I went to uh, a local church for a, um, a, a marriage uh, ministry that we were in for um, four or five months and that was very helpful um, and it it helped me learn, you know, and I, I still don't get this right because, yeah, again, you always want to, you know, fix things and you want to, you want to control things, and it's really you just got to take it one day at a time. You got to take it one day at a time with. I had to take it one day at a time with my sobriety. I have to take it one day at a time with my wife. I have to take it one day at a time with my kids, and you know, yes, there's a lot of things that you know can happen that need to be planned for but to a certain extent you all you also have to to just be prepared for what is is going to come by just beginning the day by not drinking and staying sober and and that that sort of patience with the process. And of course, my sponsor, Bill, was super helpful with it. It took us an entire year to read um, the the beginning of the, of the big book. So, you know, the first... When you was say it, the beginning, 164? Yeah, the, the, the 164. It, it took 12 months. Right. And, um, and, that, and that was great. I mean, the fact that it took a year to get through 164 pages was actually incredibly helpful. And, um, and I didn't... I didn't... And, and maybe some people have taken even longer than that. But I just... I feel like it was very slow and methodical and it just took that for me to to start you know and i and i'm like and i'm so thankful that that i'm able to apply that approach to so many areas of my life uh going forward Mm. um so it it was uh, and i would say too that the you know i'm i'm a much I'm a much more patient person. Like, obviously, you know, people with who who drink are are temperamental. I was totally temperamental, and I was close-minded, and I was quick to judge things, mm-hmm. and um, and I would I would try to control things, and I had a lot of 
pride and ego and I had a lot of resentment and by by not having resentment, not having pride, not having ego. And I've realized you like every day I need to work on not having those. It's not like they're, you know, it's not like I've been cured of them. Like it's just a, it's a, it's a, a daily thing that you have to stay after. Mm-hmm. But if you can stay after that, guess what happens? Your relationship with your spouse like improves <laughs> and your relationship with your kids like improves. In fact, just, you know, and just yesterday I had um, yelled at my daughter for not following directions because, I mean, she had kind of maliciously thrown a football on my son's back and she was trying to hurt him. And so I scolded her and I, you know, wanted her to go inside and she wasn't following directions and I, and I yelled at her. And then because of the AA program, later on that night, I, I told her I was sorry and I asked her for her forgiveness and the old Eric would not have done that. Right. And also, too, I was thinking, like, I'm like, okay, the reason I got so upset about that was because I felt like she was disrespecting me. And I f- and that got under my skin so much because of my pride. Yeah. And it's like, you know, she's nine. <laughs> right. Like, it, I, like why, 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 do I, why do I have such an ego that I would get so upset about that? And that was just really... Uh, uh, a fault and a shortcoming on my part to be that way. Right. You know, if she, you know, guess what? She's going to be disrespectful in the future. Like that's just going to happen. Like, you know, <laughs> like every parent knows that. Right. But, um, but when that happens, it doesn't have to turn into world war three. Mm. It doesn't have to. And I really credit the, um, you know, AA with having, you know, at least the beginnings of that type of perspective because my alcoholic mind would not, would not have dealt with it in that way in the past. So I got you way off track mm-hmm. at the beginning of this thing. You were going through your summary of the steps. Yeah, the shorthand version of the other steps, and I'll ju- and I'll just go go through them all real quick, just so that you know I can I can get them out because I need a little bit of, of momentum just to make sure I I can get get them off my tongue. So so one is I am broken. Two, have an open mind. Three, trust in God. Four. Um, can uh, list your sins. Five, confess your sins. Six, have God remove your sins. Seven, through humility. Eight, list those you've hurt. Nine, fix it when possible. Ten, do it again and again and again. <laughs> Eleven, um, not my will, but God's will be done. And twelve, pass it on. My favorite is ten, do it again and again and again. Yeah. So we call them the maintenance steps, right? Yeah. Well, Eric. Time has flown by, okay. and uh, I really enjoyed having you. Um, I'm going to close it up with some comments here, read a little bit out of the big book, and uh, just keep in mind, folks, that we welcome your thoughts and your feedback. Uh, please, once again, contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com or go directly to the website soberspeak.com. Uh, we encourage your input in whatever way you want to give it. Uh, we'd like listener uh, input. In other words, uh, uh, you can share your experience, strength, and hope and provide your comments and suggestions. Uh, thank you for your support in whatever form it comes, whether it's uh, just by sharing the podcast or listening as you were able to. And I'm going to go ahead and read from page 164 here. 
this is the last couple of paragraphs in the big book. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thanks for being here.